Well, I would love to have you uh, find the sermon notes in your bulletin. And if you have a Bible, we'll turn to Mark chapter 16. But if you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, I've given a big chunk of where we're going to be today on your sermon notes, okay? Because I'll be moving around a little less today than I ordinarily do, so that was a little easier, all right? But uh, you'll, you'll be in good place if you have the sermon notes available in front of you there. When, when uh, Jewish people celebrate Passover... The, the Seder, the dinner that marks the beginning of that event, traditionally begins with a question asked by the youngest in the room who is capable of asking questions. And the night proceeds with questions and answers as a, as a teaching event. But that first question that kicks it off is, is the question, why is tonight different from all the other nights? And then the responses come, and that little voice uh, asking questions and teaching, uh, the, the teaching that continues. And of course, the point of a Seder is to tell the story of God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt so long ago and bringing them out and heading toward the promised land. All of that, of course, pointing the way to the bigger story of redemption, the story of Jesus. Why is this night different from all other nights? Well, we could also ask the question then today, why is today different from all other days? I remember thinking about that uh, as a child. I was uh, raised with my mom taking all of us kids to church. My dad didn't really do that. And so I remember getting up and my mom getting us all ready and, and off we would go. And one morning as a, as a grade school child, someplace in there, I, I can see the picture now. I don't know how old I was, but I remember waking up and looking out and, and knowing today is different from all other days. Just knowing the answer to that. Today we celebrate a risen Savior. And, and as a kid, knowing the, the joy of that. Well, today uh, we mark, uh, along with millions of other Christians, the, the resurrection of Jesus. So what I want to do this morning with you is, is to read and then talk about one of the accounts in the Bible that talk about what we call that first Easter. There are, there are several different tellings of that story. Four of them we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of them offers something about what happened that morning that Jesus rose from the dead. And so they teach us from a different perspective, each one a little different flavor. So we're going to go to one of those texts and read it and talk about it for a few minutes. And then there's another text I want to go to in the book called 1 Corinthians, a little further in the New Testament. And, and I'll explain that when it comes, but it's, it's, it's kind of helps us think about the, the question of so what, okay? The so, the, the so what to this historical question, why does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead? And we want to, we want to think about that today because I would, I would want you to know, all of us, that the resurrection of Jesus really does matter, not just as a, a, a thing in history, a sidebar to history, but as, a, as, a, as something that affects your life now and certainly your life moving forward toward its end and into eternity. So it matters a lot. It really does. And we want to look at that together. Well, I want to pray for us. I do that all the time when we, when we start our, our study in the Bible because I, I so count on uh, the work of the Spirit of God to enliven the Word of God to us. Only He can do that. And I count on it. So pray with me, please. 
Our Father, how good it is to come and to open the Bible together and to think about those events surrounding what we call that first Easter. And I pray that you'd help us to to think about it maybe in fresh ways today and um, then to think about the, the why it matters, the so what part as well, and to see ourselves as part of this story, not just uh, others in the past. So we invite your work in us, each one. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to read that first selection there that I've given you, Mark 16, 1 through 8, and uh, then we'll, we'll talk about it for a few minutes, all right? Uh, God's word, as we look at it together, it says this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a, in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Okay, we'll stop our reading right there. And I want to look down with you at the section a little further on the page that says, Actual History, Jesus Rose from the Dead. And I, I, I want to say this first before we talk about the text. Sometimes when people read the accounts of Jesus rising from the dead, they think of it as uh, kind of like a religious fable or a, you know, a story, that, you know, small s, something people talk about. Uh, a myth, cultural myth. It's nice, makes you feel good, and so on. Um, but, but actually, the Bible presents the resurrection of Jesus as actual history. And in fact, the resurrection of Jesus is one of the best attested historical actions in all of history. If you think about how we look at history, um, there are some major events in world history that people take for granted. You know, half a dozen manuscripts tell the story of this general conquering this kingdom or this kingdom rising or falling. And, you know, there's a few little notes in history about that, and, and everybody teaches it in universities around the world as fact. But rather than a, a handful of manuscripts telling that story, to tell the story of Jesus, there are not only dozens or hundreds, there are thousands of manuscripts or manuscript portions that, that provide credence or evidence to say, no, this is actually a historical account. Uh, eyewitness evidence. It's written as actual history with time markers and so on. This is not presented as some little Easter bunny story. So this is presented to you to say, I believe it or I don't. All right? It's, it's presented as actual history. Now, to put it into its, its place in this telling of the story of Jesus uh, in the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark is a book in the Bible. Uh, Mark was a friend of the Apostle Peter, and who probably told him this, and Mark wrote it down. He's young at the time that this all took place. But, but what has just happened prior to the part we just read is, is, 
is the death of Jesus on the cross, which we remembered just a couple nights ago, Good Friday. Okay, we gathered right here, a couple hundred of us, to think deeply about Jesus' death on the cross and what it meant, what it means. Now, you understand that the story of, of the gospel that leads us to this moment, um, we think back to uh, the Garden of Eden, the very beginning of the Bible where sin first entered the world. People did wrong. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But you come to the gospel accounts and this, the Savior, the Redeemer has come, the long-promised Savior, the one God said he would send to redeem and to fix this broken world. And, and Jesus has come. He's lived a perfect life, quite unlike ours. And then he was betrayed. The story's told right here. He was betrayed by one of his followers and condemned to death for things he didn't do. He wasn't guilty of anything. And, and sentenced to death on a Roman cross. Terrible. Terrible. It, uh, miscarriage of justice, we would say. Ultimate miscarriage of justice. He didn't do anything wrong. But he was... He was then crucified and he died. And that moment of death, again, which we'll talk about more in in just a few minutes, that moment um, was crushing, absolutely crushing to the followers of Jesus. He had a posse. He had people who followed him around, men and women. And and, and they they saw him do amazing things. They listened to him teach and they said, "He he does not speak to us like any other person. He loved broken people. He loved people who messed up. And he, he called them to a different life. He didn't reject people who'd messed up. He, he loved them. He taught them about what God was like. And many had come to believe that he was the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the one who would save them. That is, throw off the bonds of Rome. They thought of it in political terms, okay? Most of them did. They thought of it as a political redeemer who would get rid of the Romans and and Israel would rise again under his leadership. And he died. He died. And they were crushed. Followers who said, we we thought it was him. We, We did. We thought it was him. Yeah, I, I, I've been following him around for years here now, and, and, and then he died. I saw him die. It was awful. And, and they put him in a tomb. And it's very clear uh, that this portion that we read starts with, with, with really dark, um, physically dark, certainly. But, but as I look at the story just in front of you, if you glance down at that again, these three ladies, Mary and Mary and Salome, uh, these are brave ladies. These are courageous women who who were doing what I have marked there on your notes as unthinkable only a few days earlier. Because, you see, in, in those days when you had a loved one die, there wasn't somebody who you, you called to come care for them. You did it. You, you, family and friends. When somebody died, it was your job to care for the body, prepare it for burial, and in this case, in this, with this culture, that meant um, washing the body. Uh, of course, Jesus bloodied after having been beaten, crucified, awful. And then, and then putting on all kinds of spices and then pr- getting it, wrapping it up again and preparing for burial. And the reason for the spices was to mask the, the smell of decay that would come with nature. And that's what they were coming to do. These ladies doing a utterly distasteful task with broken hearts. Uh, they're walking out there that morning. 
first light. Uh, The historical markers are very evident. When Sabbath was passed, that's when as good Jewish people, they'd get going again. They kind of hurried up to bury him before uh, Sabbath, and then Sabbath came, they rested. And here it is, the dawn. As soon as they can move, they're on it. It speaks of their love for him. And even though he had died and broken their hearts, they're going to take care of him. They're going to do what I mean, do what's got to be done. And they go early in the morning. I can't imagine oh, what the conversation was like other than what's here in the text. Who's going to move the stone? I mean, it's a big rock. It's what they did. How are we going to get into the tomb? Will they let us in? They're guards. And then we do what we're going to do. And we'll go home. I bet they weren't talking about their kids, and they weren't talking about recipes and chit-chat. No, this, you, you know that kind of a walk. You've been there before, where it's more silent and chit-chatty, because there's something heavy. That's what I expect. So they come to this dark tomb. Now, uh, under those little bullet points that I give you, encountering the unexplainable, and they come, and the stone's already rolled away. Well, stunning, because it's Matthew's gospel tells us that the, the, there had been a guard positioned there, in case someone would come and steal his body, and that there was a seal. That doesn't mean it was like welded shut, but it means the mark of Rome was placed. You, you used wax and a, and a cord and so on, and you put the, the mark of Rome that would say, whoever, whoever breaks this seal, uh, that you're signing your own death warrant. So, I mean, this was a big deal. And here they come, uh, saying, how are we going to get in? How are we, we don't even know. Where are the men? Okay, Uh, they're not there at this moment. It's the ladies going. Good job, ladies. The men are hiding. They're afraid. Yes. The unthinkable, the unexplainable. The stones rolled away. Entering the tomb, fully expecting to find the dead body of Jesus. There's this guy sitting there. Okay, this is weird. I mean, it is. There's a guy sitting there in a white robe who starts talking to them. You're looking for Jesus. He's not here. He's risen. Now, I'm I'm pressing on this because I think it's significant. These ladies didn't didn't just say, oh, wonderful. Now, they reacted like you would. They're terrified and afraid and saying, what? What do you mean? This is hard to believe. You didn't just tell me. I saw him die. There's a big crowd there watching him die. That's very clear at the end of chapter 15. Very clear. They saw him die, and now, I mean, sometimes people say these, you know, these guys were just eager to believe. Um, wish fulfillment, if you study psychology. Wish fulfillment, that's what it is. I don't think so. Uh, they're not wishing for resurrection. They're, they're doubting it. They've never thought of it yet. What are you talking about? No, this is, this is trying to explain the unexplainable. And as I note here in front of you, the text says they were trembling, astonished, and afraid, just like you would have been. Um, all of us who have lived a while have encountered death. I remember as a child first encountering death when a, a neighbor died and then a grandfather. My early experiences of death. Trying to make sense. Well, like you or Certainly, if someone had said to me in those moments, oh, don't worry, uh, that person didn't really die. They're down having coffee uh, down the street. 
you, as with me, we would say, oh, stop. It isn't the way it is. Death isn't like that. Don't don't mess with me. And here's this visitor saying he's risen. Well, I mentioned here on your notes confronting alternate explanations. Um, Down through the years, different people have tried to propose other explanations for an empty tomb. I'm not going to address all of them. There are many, but just to comment on two. Uh, First, some would suggest that the disciples stole Jesus' body. And I just pressed back on that by, by asking if these little, if these fishermen had taken on these trained professional guards who had swords and things like that, there would have been some kind of a body count. Probably would have gone poorly for the fishermen. Um, and further, if you read the gospel accounts, there are several details that make that attempt at an explanation just go away. For example, if, if this is you, if you're a disciple and you say, hey, I have a great idea. Let's go steal his body and fake a resurrection. And then the other guys say, yeah, what a cool idea. For whatever reason. If you go there and knock out the guards, roll the stone, and here's the, the body of your loved one, do you pause to unwrap it at that moment? Do you take the head cloth and fold it up neatly in its place? Or do you just grab him and run? And I would be a fan of grabbing and running. But they didn't. The grave clothes were there. Well, that's odd. Why would you do that? And further, then, as many people point to uh, the failure of the, if you're old enough to remember, the, the Watergate debacle, how long did that corporate, that group lie last? Like if a group of people get together and say, hey, let's keep a secret. If you have a group, if, any, if you're ever part of a group who says, let's keep a secret, be the first one to rat them out because somebody else will. No, I'm serious. Somebody else will tell and you'll go to jail, which is called Watergate. It's one of the lessons. Um, oh, I don't know. A couple of days, maybe. Yeah, we'll all go to jail. No, no, not if I tell first. Well, if you have the disciples of Jesus who all stole his body for whatever reason, knowing he was really dead, guess what? (laughs) Somebody's going to rat it out. And certainly, you're not going to die for what you know to be a lie, which is what all of them did. They went to their grave saying, I saw him. I saw him alive. No, he did rise from the dead. I will stake everything on that. Take my life if you must. But there's a, there's a place called heaven waiting for me. They stake their life on that, which is not usually what people do if they know something isn't true. Interesting things to think about. And I would also say this, as in this story, if there had been a, a, like a plot among the disciples, um, well, <laughs> clearly Mary and Mary and Salome didn't get the memo. Because if they had heard the rumblings of this, or the guys had run back to the house and say, we got him. Why would you go down to the tomb in the morning with spices to anoint a dead body? So they're very showing up. Tells you that they didn't know anything about that. Interesting. Interesting. Another... Uh, another explanation that's attempted is to, to say, look, you know, in, in all kindness, this is a long time ago. This is pre-scientific people. You know, people don't always recognize death. And I don't know, 
people, you know, pass out and they think they're dead. And of course, you know, um, I think gullible is the term I had there for your little fill-in if you, if you do those things. Um, pre-scientific people, though, actually did understand death maybe better than you. You know that? Maybe better than you because they experienced it more often. People didn't live as long and death was much more in your face. It wasn't protected, hidden away in some other institution. It was there. So to say they didn't understand death, I think, is, is a hard one to swallow, um, especially if you had seen this loved one crucified and a soldier stick a spear in his side and no response and blood and water comes out and to bury said person for a few days, cold, empty tomb, that's a hard place to recover. So an empty tomb, an empty tomb. What do you do with this? Well, resurrection. Um, I mentioned here, On your notes, uh, Peter, the apostle who was present that night, having denied Christ, just a couple months later in a sermon, he says it was not possible for him, for Christ, to be held by death. It wasn't possible. The, The grave couldn't keep him. Death couldn't hold him back. No, he had to rise from the dead. So actual history, I'm saying to us. Okay, I want to shift to the next section then that I have under the heading, a certain future. Jesus' resurrection is a promise of ours. And um, I want to go toward 1 Corinthians 15 here. And again, I've given you a small portion of that. I'm going to refer uh, to a larger portion. If you have a Bible physically in front of you, <clears throat> I'm, I'm looking down all the way to verse 35. I want to make a couple of comments before we get to that other section that we'll read. But 1 Corinthians 15, if I could just say a word about this. Um, this, this letter, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a specific church. It's called 1 Corinthians because it's the first letter to a church in, in the city of Corinth. And in this, in this chapter, he's explaining this thing about resurrection. He wants to talk about it. And he starts the chapter by talking about what we often refer to as the gospel. And he, re- he rehearses these key events. I mentioned a few minutes ago, we'd, I'd, I'd, I'd talk more about it, and that's where I want to do that, is here. He rehearses for us, before he talks about resurrection, he rehearses for us what Jesus did. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, the Bible tells a story of Jesus living a perfect life, and then dying on a cross, and the Bible says he did that for you and for me. He died in our place. Now get a hold of this. The Bible describes... Um, this, this word called sin in a couple different categories. For one, the one we're most familiar with, uh, the things that we do we shouldn't do, right? The, the no-nos, don't do, don't do those things. And there's some lists in the Bible, don't do that stuff. That's sin. So sin would, in one category, be the things you do. And people call that sins of commission. You did it. There's another category that's bigger and more prominent and more easily overlooked. And it's the stuff you should have done that you didn't. Sometimes people call that sins of omission. They were omitted. And let me give you the biggest, and this is the toughest one to get around. Okay? Um, Jesus said the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's the great commandment. To love the Lord your God with, did you hear it? All your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second commandment, similar, love your neighbor the way you already love yourself. Okay, first commandment. Um, If I can translate it, 
It means this. Every time your heart beats, Christ is number one. To not have that be true would be to sin because you're violating the great commandment. Now, sometimes at the end of the day, people look back and say, well, you know, I guess I did okay today. I only sinned like this many times that I can think of. And not that I'm working real hard, but, you know, I don't know, six or eight. I probably sinned a couple times. I mean, come on, a few times. It's worse than that. Because if you count every beat of your heart and ask, did I at that moment love, love Christ supremely? There's a sin. There's No, because I love me a lot. I sin, I sin, I sin. So at the end of the day, I have not transgressed the law of God a dozen times, or 20, generously, 50 on a bad day. But far more. The Bible says you and I need a savior. You couldn't save yourself. You can't make up for it. You, you, you can't pay it back. Uh, I, I could explain it like this. If, if, if you were to drive through the city of Fircrest at 26 miles an hour and get pulled over by one of the city's finest, not that that's happened to anybody in the room. It has not happened to me. I have never had a ticket. A moving violation. I didn't say I've never deserved one. I have never been caught. I have never, let's see, I better spell this out. I have never been given a ticket after having been pulled over a number of times for a moving violation. So zero. Innocent, right? Uh, Not at all. No, no. But if you had a ticket, uh, you know, they're in the city of Fircrest, they would offer to have you contribute a couple hundred bucks to the city's coffers and thank you very much. That's offense. That's an offense against a municipality. No problem. Sin, however, is an offense against an infinite God, not some guy over in Fircrest. And the penalty isn't a hundred bucks. In fact, it's not paid in coins or bitcoins. But suppose it was. And Almighty God issued you a ticket for your sin for, let's just say, I don't know, $25 million. There might be a few people who could pay that. Maybe not in this room. But most of us would be broke and stand before the bar of the Almighty Judge and say, but I can't pay that. I can't pay it. And you'd be right. And the Bible describes that, that payment is what Jesus did for you and for me. Now, you don't have to believe that. You may or may not. But the Bible says that indeed, Jesus died in your place to pay for your sin. Okay? And that this moment of resurrection is like, among other things, like the exclamation mark from God that that payment was accepted. Well, there's more to it than that, but that's part of it. No, indeed, he broke, he broke the bonds of death. So, so I'm saying this. Paul begins this chapter on resurrection with that and says Christ died in our place. And his, his resurrection was, was seen by hundreds. Now, 
What follows, part of what we're going to comment on briefly, is he begins to discuss this issue of resurrection from the dead and begins to answer people who say, you got to be kidding. That's the whole chapter. For, for, the, for the critic who says, I just don't see it. I mean, I mean, resurrection, come on. Paul says, okay, I'd be happy to think about that with you. And then he does. And so, uh, skipping over some of those, you should read the whole argument. It, it's pretty good. And some of it is presented in classic rhetorical argument style. Um, Paul was a skilled uh, uh, speaker, trained in the, uh, the, the arguments of the day. He knew what he was doing. And so he, he goes back and forth on a number of issues. And then he comes to our section here in verse 35, where he says, he's proposing a question, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? There's a question. And with what kind of body do they come? That's a different question. So as to the first, people ask this a lot now. How are the dead raised? I mean, come on, people. I know how it works. I know what happens with nature. A person dies and they're placed in the ground or however we care for them. Um, I mean, molecules coming back and, and rejuvenating and things. And besides, I knew this one guy, he was eaten by sharks. Um, pulling all the molecules back from the bottom of the ocean? They're all over the place. I mean, come on. Uh, fatalities in war. There's nothing left to bury. I mean, but God's going to just resurrect what? So the question, how were the dead raised, is one that was asked then and some would ask today. How is... How is that possible? Now, before he answers the second, may I just propose one little element of this? The Bible is built on a picture of God who is bigger and more powerful and an awful lot smarter than you think. Specifically, the God presented in the Bible, and again, you can accept this or doubt it, I'm just saying, the Bible presents a picture of God as the one who could speak and the universe would exist. He could call the stars into space, not only our galaxy, but the, literally the millions of others. And he could do it with a word. How much power do you have? What happens when you speak? Very little is the answer. Uh, no one jumps. It's a problem to all parents. No, God, God, as described in the book of Genesis, could speak and the worlds would exist. God is the one who said, let there be light. Do you have a better explanation? No, in fact, you don't. It's the problem of science, by the way. It's still a problem to science. People are still struggling to figure it out. String theory, all kinds of other stuff. Let's have it work. Uh, good luck. What was in the beginning? Well, the Big Bang. I know. Okay, I'll give you that. What blew up? Stuff. Where did it come from? Eternal stuff. And you're stuck right there. Something eternal. Or somebody who made it. No, come on. Study logic. If something blows up, something was there to blow up. If the sun is winding down, somebody wound it up. So, so think about this, please. Here's my point. A God who can create out of nothing. You're going to tell me he has a struggle pulling molecules back? 
Are you? That's my best answer. I think it's a pretty good one. You're going to tell, tell me that God, I don't think he can do that. Uh, really. Not a problem. Breathing life into a dead body. Got it. Created the whole universe out of nothing. I spoke. The Bible says God spoke and the worlds existed. And who do we think we're dealing with? Someone small. Uh, Psalm 50. There's a moment where God addresses, I would say, the modern mind, maybe yours, as he says, you thought I was just like you. Isn't that interesting? You thought I was just like you. Weak, powerless, not all that smart. Maybe not all that, I'm not insulting you. I'm just calling it out. You thought I was just like you. Wrong. King of the universe, God would say. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need your offerings. They're good for you, but they're pretty meaningless to me. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. The wealth of every mine is mine. I'm God. Yes, I can do that. Resurrect? Not a problem. With what kind of body do they come? Now, I won't delve into all of his arguments here, but he presents a couple of interesting word pictures. He, he, he uses a picture of a seed being placed in the ground, and he's saying there is similarity and dissimilarity to what comes out. Similarity, that is, if you plant carrots, you are going to grow amazing, isn't it? Yes, every single time. Every single time, similarity, dissimilarity in that what pops up out of the ground doesn't look like that seed that went in. That's the dissimilarity. So he's talking about resurrection, and people are saying, how can this work? And I saw the, I cared for my loved one. I placed him in the ground, and you're going to resurrect? I mean, it's pretty broken. And he's going, no, similarity but dissimilarity. Sown, placed in the ground in humility and dishonor, raised in glory, he says. So, so he's just discussing this, and he uses a seed as an example. Greater glory of that which springs from the ground. Uh, if you've had kids, um, maybe you've planted things with them before. I remember as a kid wanting to plant things and see if they could grow. I don't know. I suspect it was a trick from my mother, but I remember one time planting peas. I don't even like peas. Um, but for whatever reason, I remember somehow I went out and planted peas. I did what you do. You plant them and water them and so on. What happens? Well, nothing for days. What's every kid do? I know you have to check. Is anything happening? So you kind of dig a little bit and, and, and wow, unfortunately, it grew peas. <laughs> Amazing. I know. My mom thought, oh, you grew those. You're gonna... That's why I thought it was a trick for my mother. You, you grew those, so you should eat them. And I went, <laughs> I grew them for you. Um, Paul uses a seed as an example, though, to say what is placed in the ground isn't which... I mean, it is, but it's different. What grows is more glorious and more plentiful. A grain of seed must be placed in the ground in order to, 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 to rise to a different life. So there's one analogy to try to help us understand. Then he mentions Adam, the Adam of the Bible, Genesis, uh, a natural man, human being, and he contrasts him with Christ. Uh, he calls him the second Adam. Uh, the first Adam was a natural man, Jesus, spiritual. As, and, he, and then he says, just like there was a, you have a natural body, this one, there will also be a spiritual body. So he's, he's teaching us along the way here. 
So if I may move very quickly, I want to read those verses and make just a couple comments here, and we'll pull some thoughts to a close. But I I just want you to see the resurrection of Jesus affects you. It's about your life as well and your future. So these verses then, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57, uh, he says this, when the perishable, he means your body here, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, those phrases both mean the same thing, talking about your body, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, uh, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. We've been talking about that. And the power of sin is the law. Uh, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So the, the sting of death is sin. So sin, that's the problem here. That's the problem. The power of sin is the law. That, that'd be that list of rules that, that points out our sin. He says, but thanks be to God, there's a different victory here. Now, in this ver- the verses I just read, it's almost like Paul is mocking death. Not to say it's meaningless to us today. It hurts. We all know this. But he's saying death, listen to me. He's, he's, it's personified. Like death is a person who can listen. He says, death, listen, you don't have the final say. Not anymore. Death, you don't rule. Not anymore. Christ is risen from the dead. The power of sin is broken. The power of the grave, it'll keep you no more. So he's, he's, he's looking at what Jesus did, and he's, he's extrapolating that toward those who trust Christ. Talks about hope. Now, a couple of bullet points, and then, and then a couple of other examples, and we'll be done here. The larger uh, text here, I, I mentioned to you, includes a discussion of some of the practical elements about resurrection. And, and he mentions this earthly body, the one you live in right now, it's for life here. It, it fits this planet. It fits here. It's not fit for heaven. So when your life is done here, you need a different vessel People talk today about, could we live on Mars? Well, that's a whole other discussion. I just know these bodies were made for this earth. And you plan to spend eternity somewhere else, you're going to need a different vessel in which to do so. So resurrection body, you need a different vessel to live someplace even better. It's not suited. This body isn't suited for that. Second little bullet point, a Christian view of the body, please get this, it involves great respect for our physical bodies because they're gifts to us from a loving God. You may or may not believe this. I'm not sure. I don't know everybody in the room. Um, but, but, but the Bible tells us this. Listen, the Bible says you were made by the hand of a loving God, even if you don't believe it. Isn't that interesting? The Bible says you were made by the hand of a loving God. And in fact, check this out. Psalm 139 says that, that before you were born, God had marked out the days that you would live. Isn't that interesting? already marked out for you. You were built, put together in in an amazing way by the hand of a loving God who knew what he was doing. You're not just some accident of nature going, wow, where'd that guy come from? No, no. Created by, by a loving God and your days marked out for you so that if you believe this, I'm telling you, This affects the way you live. If you really believe that you're not going to leave this earth a day too soon or stay a day too long. That's the impact of that. If your days are marked out for you before you're born, instead of living in fear like, oh my goodness, it's going to get me today. uh, Hey, you know what? 
I'm in the hands of a good and loving God. So yes, I buckle my seatbelt, but I don't drive around in fear like, oh no, the next one's going to get me. Now, one of the, I mentioned, I, I think, at this hour, I don't know, one of the good things about a pandemic is it makes people think about their mortality. That's a gift. You should think about yours. Not going to be here forever, friend. You're not. But the Bible says God knows you, made you. You're not a mistake. And that he marked out for you the number of days. The number of days ordained for you, he says, before there was one of them. Amazing. Wow. Living with confidence. Jesus' resurrection body was still identifiable as him, bearing the marks of his crucifixion. Indeed, John 20, you can read that. As Thomas said, unless I see the marks of the nails, put my finger into his sight, I won't believe. Interesting. Uh, And Jesus showed up and said, hi, Thomas. Tom, Tommy, here I am. Touch me and see. Death for the child of God is not the end of the road, but a transition from this life to the next. Now, I've got this other little bullet point here for a reason. Specifically, the Bible never denies the reality or the pain or the sting of death. I say that because I have lived a couple of years, as have many of you, and even if you've lived fewer years, you likely have felt the sting of death. And if you have ever grieved the loss of someone you love, the Bible never tells you to stop it and get over it. it provides you comfort, yes, 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 a thousand times. But to tell you somehow that you're doing something wrong when you're grieving or sad, that's not the, what the Bible says. No, God comes alongside us in our grief, cares for us in our sorrow, but never shames you for feeling loss. I want to I wrap up with, with this. Um, a week ago, I mentioned this book and this, this writer, Tim Keller. Uh, he is a retired Presbyterian minister who lived in New York, served in New York for a lifetime, along with his wife. And this book is entitled Hope in Times of Fear. Now, interestingly, um, Tim Keller, he's about 70, 71, something like that, which to some of you is amazingly old. I realize 70, 71, good night, man. Okay, and to others of you, he's just a kid. I realize. Wherever that places you. Um, I, I, he, he wrote this book, but I want, I'm going to read just from a little bit. This will tell you more what I want to say. Uh, there's an interview here. This is the transcript of an interview um, in the Atlantic but it's under the heading, Growing My Faith my faith in the Face of Death. And um, he says this, I've spent a good part of my life talking with people about the role of faith in the face of imminent death. Since I became an ordained Presbyterian minister in 1975, I've sat at countless bedsides and occasionally even watched someone take their final breath. I recently wrote a small book entitled On Death. And a month after that book was published... I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I was still caught unprepared. His point is, it's one thing to to walk alongside others and encourage and coach and help. It's another, another thing entirely to be the person who needs the coaching. And he's just saying, it's not the same. I just wrote the book. Well, this book, I, his most recent, of course, was written after that as he begins to process this. Now, just a, a couple of of quotations here. He says, a significant number of believers in God find their faith shaken or destroyed when they learn that they will die at a time and in a way that seems unfair to them. 
Hmm. He says, before my diagnosis, I've seen this in people of many faiths. Tim Keller, one of the things I admire about him, he's, he, he's hung out with a lot of people uh, of different faiths, backgrounds, or none. And he's super good at interacting with a lot of different people. Very good at that. He says, one woman with cancer told me some years ago, I'm not a believer anymore. That just doesn't work for me. I can't believe in a personal God who would do something like this to me. Keller comments, cancer killed her God. Interesting. Now, his final paragraph, and I'm skipping a lot. He, he, this is a great article. Or great, You could find it if you look up the Atlantic. You, you Google it, you'll get it. He says this. I can sincerely say without any sentimentality or exaggeration that I've never been happier in my life. Think about that. It's probably in the last year of his life. It might not go well. I've never been happier in my life. I've never had more days filled with comfort. It's equally true. I've never had so many days of grief. He's processing this with his wife. Years he expected to spend with his grandkids. Wow. One of, his dearest, one of our dearest friends, he writes, lost her husband to cancer six years ago. Even now, she says, she might seem fine, and then out of nowhere, some reminder or thought will sideswipe her and cripple her with sorrow. He says this, yes, but I have come to be grateful for those sideswipes because they remind me to reorient myself to the convictions of my head and the process of my heart. And I find when I take time to remember how to deal with my fears and savor my joys, the consolations are stronger and sweeter than ever. You should read this article. My, my, my reason to bring it up at this point is to say the resurrection of Jesus is not just some theory. It's not just a feel-good story. It's not just some myth. This is about your life and mine, and your future and mine. And I hope you know Christ today so that when your time here on earth is done, you're ready to meet him. And before then, you're ready to live with him, even now. That's the gospel. We're going to sing a closing song today. And um, I'm going to step back up and pray for us. And, and we'll be done. I'm out of breath. I hope you are too. I'd love to pray for us. Father, what a a good morning it has been. Thank you for all those who've joined us starting at first hour and throughout the day. Those who've joined us online or will listen later, thank you. So much we have to celebrate and so much we need from you. Your grace, your kindness, your help, your enabling us to live as people of faith in a world where where we struggle. Thank you for each person here, each dear person who's walked in, known to you, loved by you. Point us to Christ. Draw us close, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.